Welcome to episode 47 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. My apologies for having missed a couple of weeks. I had food poisoning last week. And honestly, it hit me like a 2 by 4 I won't go into too much detail. But suffice it to say that at one point, I felt like Luther Abel must have when he was devoured by those creatures. God rest his soul. If he had one. We'll never know. So, I've been trying to put my finger on what precisely it is that bothers me so much about some of the anti-Israel protests that I've seen. And I think I've worked it out. It's that much of the bigotry on display is different from the bigotry, whether soft or hard, that I have seen in my own experience. Now, I don't have an especially well-developed framework to describe this, but broadly speaking, I think I'd place racial or religious or cultural bigotry into two groups, intuited and learned. By intuited, I mean the sort of stupid stuff that kids sometimes do when they encounter someone different. Perhaps a new student arrives at your school and he has a thick accent, and because you're a kid, you mimic it. Now, that's not actually bigotry in the classic sense, because in most cases you don't mean it, but it is playing around with stereotypes and marking out differences, and it can sometimes matter because it can make the people at whom it's aimed feel really terrible. I'm sure I was guilty of this myself at times when I was a little kid. I'm pretty sure everyone has been. I'm also sure that when it was pointed out to me that I was being mean, I stopped. That's the first time. The second sort I've encountered is learned bigotry. Now, I don't say this to praise myself, but merely as a matter of fact, I really did not have much of any of that in my childhood. I was taught from an extremely early age that people were different in some superficial ways, but that that didn't matter at all. My dad had been in the Air Force and served alongside all sorts of people. My mother taught children with special needs of all races and creeds. My immediate family was not all white. And in truth, the only frequently expressed antipathy that I heard growing up was against Germany, which had started two world wars in which my family had to fight. And the same was true outside of the house. The school I went to, because it was associated with the University of Cambridge, really was a melting pot. I had friends whose parents were from India and Israel and Argentina and Kenya, And it never particularly occurred to me to hate any of them for it. But I was aware that others did. And I, of course, met people whose parents or grandparents held prejudices. But here's the thing. Those people, too, tended to cut it out when challenged. 
or at the very least, they used to hide it when challenged, perhaps out of a desire to remain on the right side of polite society, and perhaps because having been challenged, it became immediately clear to them that what they were saying was pretty stupid. But the people I'm seeing on the streets and on our campuses, they don't do that. Instead, they seem to have a pretty well-developed set of answers that explain exactly why they think what they think. I saw a video last week of a college professor being asked whether or not she would condemn Hamas and what it did on October 7th. And she said that it's not a yes or no question, which, which you can only say if your head is full of preposterous frameworks that you mistake for sophistication. I find the sort of ideology that leads to people saying that they can't, with a yes or no answer, decide whether or not they condemn what Hamas did. Terrifying. Because I think that's the one thing that can make otherwise good people do bad things. Douglas Murray was criticized this week for pointing out that many of the Nazis who did terrible things during World War II and before weren't psychopaths who thought that they were doing great evil and enjoyed it, but were actually relatively boring people who didn't think about it much at all. Amari's critics said that he was defending Nazis by proposing this, but of course he was doing no such thing. And more important, he was correct. There were a lot of creeps in the SS and the Gestapo and beyond, because those sorts of institutions attract freaks. But to do what the Nazis did on the scale that they did it required ideology. Ideology that made intelligent people feel as if they were doing something that was morally right or even normal. And that's what I see on the streets when I see people explain why they favor Hamas or why they excuse Hamas or why Hamas isn't the question. They've abstracted out what they're talking about to such an extent that they're no longer worried that they're excusing a terrorist organization that rapes and maims and decapitates and throws grenades at children. Often as the result of very expensive educations, educations that as a society we praise and cherish and seek, They've subordinated all the details to categories and concepts. Settlers, oppressors, indigenous peoples, and so on. And to them, the people involved here aren't people. They're widgets or tokens or representatives of great forces in history. And their obligation is to those great forces irrespective of the details. And I find that scary. I find it scary when people do that because I don't know how to get past their zeal. I can talk to people who hold lazily bigoted views. And I can talk to people who don't really know they're being awful. And I can try to talk them out of it. But when those views are the product of a unified theory of everything, of which they're proud... When those views come with a credential attached, 
Well, that gets really, really difficult. I think that's why I found it so alarming to watch. Because we're not talking here about people who were brought up in a different time, people who are stupid, people who were brainwashed by the circumstances of their birth. We're talking about ostensibly well-educated younger people whose heads are filled with coherent nonsense. My guest this week is Rui Teixeira, a senior fellow at AEI, a columnist at the Washington Post and a politics editor at the Liberal Patriot. Rui, welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. Uh, thanks, Charles. Thanks for having me. All right, here's my opening 30,000 feet question. And feel right. free to correct me if my presumptions here are wrong. But you wrote a book 20 years ago alongside John Judas, famous book mm -hmm. called The Emerging Democratic Majority. Mm -hmm. And when you guys wrote that book, Republicans ran everything in Washington. They'd won the vast majority of the presidential elections in recent years. When the Democrats had won, they'd got less than 50%. They'd had to acquiesce to a bunch of what Republicans wanted. Now, 2023, Democrats run D.C., or most of it. Democrats have won three of the last four presidential elections. Republicans have won the popular vote once since 1988. And yet your new book is called Where Have All the Democrats Gone? <laughs> How do I make sense of this? Well, I guess in some ways it might seem counterintuitive, but we're really, what John and I are really concentrating in, in sort of making that case is the fact that Democrats certainly can win the popular vote in national elections, but their ability to dominate the country politically is very much in doubt. And we've seen a lot of seesawing between the Republicans and the Democrats, particularly in the last 10 or 15 years. Famously, in 2016, Trump took over. The Republicans had control of Congress after that. The Democrats come back in 2018. They barely win the presidency in 2020. They actually lose House seats by a miracle, basically. They control the Senate by a single seat. And in 2022, Democrats sort of stave off what appears to be a terrible election, and there's more a red ripple than a red wave, but nonetheless, they lose the House. And going into 2024, the election looks very dicey, despite the fact that Biden is running uh, against Trump, presumably, who is supposed to be completely discredited as an agent for the Republican Party and as a, someone who should be able to govern the country. And yet here they are at 50-50, basically, in everything, in, in the polls for Congress, in the polls for the Senate. They look like they'll lose seats. Manchin, obviously, disappearing uh, yesterday is, is a blow to that. And uh, as we know, everything looks very tight for the 2024 election. So it is kind of a seesaw. And if you aggregate it over the entire United States in terms of popular vote, they do have perhaps a built-in advantage at this point. But that is different from really dominating politics. That's different from dominating Congress. That's different from being able to move your agenda in the way you want to. It's different from not being on a knife's edge all the time. So... That's part of what we mean by where have all the Democrats gone, that they don't seem to be able to build that durable majority coalition. And another part of it, of course, is that underlying all that, and we talk a lot about that in the book, is the loss of the working class 
base of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is increasingly dependent on college-educated votes, increasingly losing working-class votes, famously first with the white working class, and then quite recently, we see non-white working-class voters, particularly Latinos, uh, bailing out from the Democratic Party. So regularly, you see in polls that the Democrats will be up by 10, 15, 20 points among college-educated voters overall, and down 10, 15, 20 points among working-class voters. So that's part of what we think has happened to the Democratic Party, and it's put a ceiling on their level of support. We cast our minds back to when the emerging Democratic majority came out yeah. in 2002. And as you said, we were making a case that seemed counterintuitive, but we did identify a number of constituencies and changes in the country that were really in the Democrats' favor, the rise of professionals, the rise of the non-white population, shifts in the women's vote, shifts in the more dynamic cosmopolitan metro areas in the country we called ideopolises. We put all that together and we said the Democrats, as constituted, did appear to be better able to hold on to, to build a, a dominant coalition. But importantly, we actually we made very careful to stipulate they needed to maintain a strong minority share of the white working class vote, maybe 40% overall, close to 45, 50 in uh, some of the key Midwest states. And if they could do that, it did look like a, they could build a dominant coalition that would have some durability, some staying power. And when 2008 arrives and Obama wins and they take Congress as a whole, I mean, it, it, it does seem like the prophecy or at any rate, the possibility has come true. But of course, 2010 is the rude awakening where they lose 63 seats in the House and all of that white working class support that Obama had in some ways managed to claw back in this very good 2008 election, it all disappears en masse. Now, Obama comes back and he does manage to take the 2012 election, albeit by a narrower margin. But one reason he was able to do that, and perhaps the key reason, is he gets back some of those white working class voters, particularly in the upper Midwest, that allows him to prevail. But then 2014, it's another bad election for the Democrats. And an interesting thing happens as those politics are unfolding, which is that Democrats decide since Obama won a second time, this is really all about the rising American electorate. It's sort of the Bowdlerized version of the thesis John and I put forward in the emerging Democratic majority. It's kind of like demographics is destiny. Our groups are growing. The Republican groups are declining. If we just keep pushing forward in an almost automatic sense, we'll be able to overwhelm the other side. So that was the kind of comforting message people took away from 2012. 2014 should have been a, an awakening of sorts. And 2016 was clearly sending a very strong signal that that coalition was not stable. That coalition could be undercut. That coalition could be outpointed by the Republicans by taking advantage of the appeal they were developing to working class voters. And Trump is able to do that because he blows up the economic, traditional economic consensus of the Republican Party, and he sort of trains his fire on elites in both the Democratic and the Republican Party. And he appeals very much to these especially these white working class voters in the Midwest and other places who are feeling left behind. They feel Trump's their guy. He's talking about bad trade deals. He's talking about immigration. He's talking about the way the people who run this damn country don't give a good gosh darn about me and my communities. And at least he's on my side. He may not have very clear ideas about what he's going to do, but he says he's going to do it. So I'll give him a chance. And then as, as I pointed out in 2016, one thing that's notable, and that was not paid enough attention to at the time, is how well Trump did among 
particularly Latino working class voters. So uh, the basic idea is people thought that Latinos would bail out en masse from the Republicans. Whatever their support they had would evaporate. But instead, it actually was stable and it actually increased somewhat. So in 2020, that's where the big shift takes place. And this was not supposed to happen. Trump is anathema, or should be, to Latino voters. He's racist. He's against immigration. He's a bad man. He, he doesn't like them. They're not his kind of people. So therefore, all the Latinos should have bailed out from Trump at that point. But instead, he got like a 18-point margin shift in his favor nationally. And that was true across many states. It was true across various Latino subgroups. So it was really quite extraordinary. And that should have been quite a signal to the Democrats that their coalition was, in fact, being undercut and changed by these political trends and that they needed to pay attention to that. And that because the Democrats were changing in this way, they were developing a profile that was actually not consistent with what working class voters wanted and what working class voters felt comfortable with. We talk a lot about that in the second part of the book in Cultural Radicalism, where we talk about the ways in which the Democrats and their shadow party have moved away from sort of more universalist messages of tolerance and anti-discrimination and equal opportunity toward things that are much more culturally extreme than that. Uh, and yeah, that so I want to flesh that out. Uh, okay. you, you have a phrase you use, the soul of the party. And you write that the party has abandoned and even actively alienated many of these voters. So how has it abandoned and even actively alienated those voters? And what is or should be the soul of the party? Well, the soul of the party, and, and uh, as the way we see it, I mean, it kind of goes back to, to the New Deal. And the basic idea that Democrats, when they've been most successful, have been perceived as the party of the common man and woman, of the ordinary American. When they're able to put that forward and they're able to promulgate policies that are along those lines that people find credible, that's when they do the best. Democrats have gotten away from that. As we talk about in the first part of the book, we see this great divide opening up in America between the fate of working class voters and the fate of college educated voters. We see intense geographic polarization and economic outcomes. And a lot of these working class voters hold Democrats partially responsible for that. They see the Democrats' trade and deregulatory policies, the sort of way they favor finance and a lot of other things, is not really being in their wheelhouse. At any rate, it didn't produce for them. And they do find the Democrats culpable on that ground. So they lose their faith in Democrats as the party of prosperity. And you can see this very clearly in the Gallup data, where you go from double-digit advantages on which party can actually provide prosperity in the coming years to parity or, or frequently a negative judgment on that score. So they're already losing working class voters on economic grounds on, in terms of their faith in Democrats as managers of the economy. And then you get into the 21st century and we see the Democrats evolve over the course of the 21st century, the first decade, and especially the second decade toward the idea that Democrats must fundamentally be about taking care of and promoting the interests of particular subgroups of the population, black voters, people of color, women, trans people. The idea that the people's identity must be safeguarded, they must be promoted, they must be favored in some ways. And the old democratic messages of colorblindness, of universal uplift, of equal opportunity for all isn't enough. We must have equal outcome. 
if there's any disparities that are extant in our society, famously, as Ibram X. Kendi said, they must be the result of, of racism. There's no such thing as a disparity that isn't caused by some dreadful aspect of American society. So this really skews the Democrats away from the value perspective of most working class voters, which is if you work hard, <laughs> you should be treated fairly and you get, should get rewarded fairly and everybody should have equal opportunity. We should be tolerant of people who are different from us, but they shouldn't necessarily be favored over, over me or you. So the Democrats really do to get, to get away from that. And that pushes them toward a series of positions on not just broadly on race and gender and how those things are conceived of in the democratic universe, but also on specific policies around immigration or on crime and so on, where Democrats start feeling, well, we can't really be tough on immigration because that's basically xenophobic. So right. we have to like basically be very tolerant about people coming over the border. The most important thing is to uh, find a path to citizenship for the people who are here. But this border security stuff, not so important and borderline racist to concentrate on that. And of course, we see this in crime famously in the teens with the rise of Black Lives Matter and the, sort of the progressive prosecutor movement, this, this feeling that basically you need to sort of decriminalize crime because if you enforce it, if you try to get criminals off the street, if you enforce laws around shoplifting, if you do a lot of things that have to do with basically trying to tamp down on crime as it's manifest in the actual streets of actual cities and actual communities, that has a disparate impact. Disparate impact is racist, and we be fundamentally concentrating on ways of reducing those disparities, making sure that making sure that the way we, we punish criminals when we enforce public safety does not have disparate outcomes. But of course, when you do that, it winds up you don't enforce laws very strictly, and you tend to draw back from enforcing the laws that do exist. And we certainly saw that in the aftermath of first BLM, and then most importantly with the George Floyd summer. If you basically demonize cops as being agents of a racist white supremacist society, then cops will pull back. And of course, the whole movement, there was a whole movement around trying to defund them, which was extremely unpopular, especially with the black voters who were in poor communities, who were presumably the people who should have been 100% for defunding the police. They weren't at all. This was completely an activist-generated meme and an activist-generated movement that actually didn't have a lot to do with what the people who were supposed to benefit from it really wanted. Um, and we see this a lot. I do think that runs through a lot of these issues that Democrats have doubled and tripled down on. They're not what ordinary voters want. They are, however, what the Democrats activists want, what the shadow party, we discussed this penumbra of nonprofit organizations, academia, media outlets, advocacy organizations, foundations, who basically sort of in or around the party provide a lot of the cadre for them, and certainly support them in a lot of different ways in terms of moving their agenda. And all of those groups and institutions have moved in a direction that's heavily oriented toward this cultural radicalism, what is typically referred to as, quote unquote, wokeism. It really has, to a large extent, hegemonized most of the Democratic Party. And so why do you think that the Democratic Party, if there is this divide between the shadow party and what voters actually want, is siding with the shadow party. I understand that parties do this. I think we're seeing a great deal of that in the Republican Party as Absolutely. well, where the, the party clearly is not responding either to its own voters or to American voters in general in key ways. But on the Democratic side, why is, why is that happening? Surely the incentive in politics is to respond to your voters. 
Well, I mean, if we lived in a Downsian world, right, Anthony Downs' economic theory of democracy, all parties would be doing this all the time. They would be moving aggressively to the center to pick up the maximum number of votes, and everyone would be competing about uh, how to get those voters in the center. However, that's right. not the way it works. Parties are responsive to donors. They're responsible to activist groups. They're responsible, to, in a sense, to their own ideology and their own political priorities, some of which are viewed as expendable, some of which are not. And I think what's happened with the Democrats is a lot of the institutions and people and activists and constituencies in urban areas who are most influential and have the loudest megaphones within the Democratic Party, their priority is not to build the broadest possible coalition. Their priority is to get their issues moved. And they're in a bubble. They talk to each other. They listen to each other. They read each other. They reinforce each other's commitments to a lot of these issues and, in fact, enforce toward people who disagree with them, sort of a certain amount of cancel culture type stuff, and just right. basically try to create a culture of fear around dissenting from this ideological orthodoxy, which has taken hold. So that's, I mean, it's quite possible for parties under the influence of this, this, kind, of, uh, this kind of cluster of institutional forces and activist forces to actually depart from what the median voter wants, and in fact, not even take it that seriously. And to the extent that they do hear right, that, oh, well, maybe voters are concerned about immigration, maybe voters are concerned about crime, maybe voters really are, like, not too sure about trans women or women, and that, you know, puberty blockers should be available like candy for kids who declare they're different from their biological sex. That's what conservatives say. That's what Fox News says. That's what the National Review says, right? Yeah. It's all made up. It's all deceptive. It's all smoke and mirrors. Our cause is just... At the bottom, voters will never be concerned about this all that much. And I call that the Fox News fallacy, where things that are of real concern to voters are, to some extent, publicized and focused on by the conservative media. And precisely because they're mentioned by those kind of people, many Democrats feel they're entitled to disregard that, because we all know that is all fake stuff, it's all mis and disinformation, and it's coming from a bad place, and you know we're just going to stop up our ears and not listen to it. And I think that's a tragic mistake because, again, I think it puts a ceiling on Democrats' possible level of support and, and also, of course, produces many bad policies. So this is bad, and they'd be better off if they didn't do that, if, in fact, they opened their ears to what working class and ordinary voters really want, and that would allow them potentially to break the stalemate between the parties. So that's really what our book is about, Charles. It's about a stalemate between the parties. It's not saying the Democrats can't win elections. It's certainly not saying Republicans can't win elections. But it is saying that it's very unlikely that in their current form, either party, again, we talk really about the Democrats, is capable of developing that durable majority coalition that can really move the country into a much better place. I think we're going to be stuck with this stalemate between the parties and the seesaw for quite a while. All right, well, give me another definition, because there's a big mm -hmm. difference between stalemate, the word you just used, mm -hmm. and a couple of words that are in the blurb of the book, political disaster, specifically political disaster in the days ahead. What does political disaster look like compared to this seesawing or stalemate? Well, I think political disaster from a lot of Democrats' perspective, and it's not a crazy idea, is, you know, Trump's going to run in 2024, Republicans are going to take back the Senate, and Trump might win. And they might actually get the House, too, and they might do some things that would be unpleasant for the Democrats, unpleasant for people in the country. And that would be a disaster. 
why did Biden run in 2020? The whole idea is we're going to return to normality. We're going to get the economy clicking. We're going to get rid of COVID. We're going to have a much more decorous and responsible political dialogue. One reason why voters are so down on Biden today is they don't think things have gotten back to normal. The inflation spike, the fighting between the parties, the, the wars. I mean, the, there's a lot of things going on that make people think this is not normal. This is not what I had in mind. So what are we going to get if we have Trump in office again? It's not, you know, I'm not one of those people who believe that Trump will immediately institute a fascist regime. I do, however, think that it would be bad for the country and it would create a lot of unending polarized conflict between the parties, which I think Trump and his supporters would be happy to promote and accentuate. I mean, what I'd like to see is, is more of a <laughs> genuine debate between conservative and liberal ideas, policy ideas about what would be best for the country that then could be settled by the voters on the basis of their merits and about who they feel has actually done things in their interest and get us away from the kinds of things that, that we've seen in the last period of time since 2016. So by disaster, I don't mean, and I didn't write that copy anyway. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, 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 don't, I don't think we mean uh, we're on the verge of fascism, we're on the verge of complete political okay. and social breakdown. We do mean it's, it's not what the Democrats have in mind. And uh, you know, there's always a possibility that uh, Republicans could get their act together and, and actually uh, dominate them for, for a while. What would that if look Trump like? Trump gets out of the picture. Yeah, okay. So Trump gets out of the picture and then Republicans get their act together. What does that mean? Well, I think it would be a kinder, gentler, gentler Trumpian populism that actually had some meat on the bones in terms of the policy approaches that would actually benefit working class people. And that wouldn't be so concentrated on just prosecuting the culture war. And in fact, that Republicans themselves would move to the center on a lot of these issues. I think that people would be thirsty for a party that promoted that kind of approach. And they don't have a lot of faith in the Democrats these days. But I think Republicans, if they make the offer to them, it's possible. I mean, there's certainly a lot of people in the Republican Party today who are arguing about the need for the Republicans to have a working class centered agenda to have an economic approach and policy approach and sort of an affect that is really centered on how do we benefit working class people? How do we promote an economy that develops in a direction that, that is actually good for working class people? And that's a debate that's unfolding across, I think, the conservative movement within the Republican Party. And I think at this point, the purchase of the kind of J.D. Vance's and Marco Rubio's of the world and where they're coming from versus more traditional mainline conservatives is, is not resolved. And we saw that in the Freedom Conservative versus National Conservative Manifestos. I mean, I personally think that's a healthy debate, but it's clearly uh, not been resolved. And they're going to have to figure out eventually what they're going to put their bets on. I'm a Freedom Conservative, as you may know, but that's uh, irrelevant. Yeah, I'm more of a National Conservative guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not really a conservative, but no, I know but, you're you not. Know, I know you're so not. <laughs> from the sidelines as I'm as I'm rooting, you know, eating my popcorn and, right. and sort of watching right. the back and forth. I say, go Nat Cons. Yeah, no, I don't agree with separate, everything by any by any stretch. It's a separate question from what people will vote for anyway. And I, absolutely, know, I, absolutely. We're talking about ours. I mean, in the end, it's ours versus D's, right. uh, and we'll see how all that sorts out. So, how big a problem is abortion for Republicans at the moment, with Dobbs having overruled Roe v. Wade? Well, I think we can see from the election results that it's it's been, you know, well, we mentioned the word disaster. It's been kind of a disaster. It's been pretty easy for Democrats to portray Republicans and their various candidates, no matter what they say 
as fundamentally being for banning abortion, full stop. That's extremely unpopular. And to the extent Democrats are able to tar them with that characterization, it redounds clearly uh, for them quite negatively. And particularly in the kind of elections we've had since, since Dobbs, because Democrats, by virtue of their coalition, and this gets back to what we were talking about in terms of the, the way the parties have switched their college-educated and working-class bases to some extent, Democrats are now set up very well for low turnout elections. They're kind of low turnout election specialists. They have a much more educated, activated constituency. They have people who are very much, you know, more likely to be engaged in these off-year special elections. And abortion just supercharged that, right? Because a lot of these same voters who would be more likely than your average Republican voter to turn out in these kind of elections is specially activated by the abortion issue. So I think it's, it's been an unmitigated disaster for the Republicans so far. Now, that doesn't mean that it will be forever. I mean, just in raw political terms, in terms of the coming election, regardless of how the debate around abortion does or does not change, we will see a very different electorate in 2024 than we've seen in 2023 or 2022. In this election, uh, there's a whole lot of peripheral voters are going to surge into the electorate. And all the data we've seen suggests these voters are much more Republican-leaning, much more sympathetic to Trump, and much less ideological. They're not going to vote on the basis of abortion, these voters. They're going to vote on the basis of other things like the economy and, and other issues. At this point, I mean, that's advantage Republicans and advantage Trump. So abortion will, by definition, I think, be less, less of a, a killer issue in 2024. But Republicans are, are now trying their best to kind of focus on something different, that the Democrats are for unrestricted abortion and we are for reasonable limits. Now, that didn't quite work in Virginia, though you could argue it might have stopped the damage a little bit. But it's a hard sell because it, the Republicans do have a very big pro-life contingent, which is quite vocal, and who it's not hard to find commitments on the part of these activists and their groups that basically sound like they just want to ban abortion, period, and statements that have been made in the past and so on. We saw that in the Kentucky governor's race. So, so it's going to be hard for the Republicans to wiggle out of this one, but I do think there is movement, you know more about it than I do, within the party and among politicians and advisors and what have you to say, this is going to kill us. We have to have a different profile on the issue. We have to put the onus back on the Democrats because the position of the median voter is, yeah, I mean, abortion should be basically available without question for the first three months. Second three months, eh, I don't know, probably not. And then th the last trimester, definitely not. So it's not like it's a crazy position. Even in Virginia, I think there was a split in polling that I saw on the question of the 15-week limit with exceptions thereafter. But Democrats don't want to talk about 15-week limits. They want to talk about a ban. I mean, just using that word, you know, has a big effect in how people think about it. People don't like bans, and especially they don't like bans when they not not unreasonably associate it with the more hardline elements of the Republican Party, who really do want to ban all abortions or, or very close to it. So that's a long-winded answer, but just saying, yeah, it's, it's hurt them pretty bad. Might not hurt them as much in the future, but boy, they got some work to do. How big of a problem is Donald Trump? And is he a bigger problem than abortion for them? Well, uh, that's a good question. I mean, in a way, Trump, you know, he gives and he takes away. He gives them that populist energy. There's actually a lot of people now who look at 
look back with almost nostalgia on the Trump economy, and he can work that pretty well. He's obviously a vigorous messenger on immigration. On the other hand, he's toxic to wide swathes of the electorate, and he's not going to do very well with voter groups where Republicans have been losing ground. And he's, you know, he's kind of a, he's somewhat unhinged. You don't know how he's going to say. Uh, you don't know what's going to happen with the legal cases. I think he's he could win this coming election. But if there's anyone who could lose to Joe Biden, it's Trump, right? You think the I mean, other it, candidates are stronger? I think if like, Nikki Haley is a nominee, and I don't think she will be, I think she'd have a better better chance. Because Biden is an extraordinarily weak incumbent. He's tarred with all the negative image problems the Democrats now have because he's been in office for a while and he's done nothing to really change them. So he, he runs in 2020 as I'm the moderate normie voter candidate. And I think that's going to be a lot harder for him now. And basically, people don't approve of him. They don't approve of how the economy has been handled. They don't approve of him on immigration and on crime. He's not a strong incumbent. There's lots and lots of people who are not happy with Biden and his administration. And even though he has the advantage of incumbency, he should be able to be beaten. But I, I think Trump is, you know, definitely puts it in the coin toss territory. And I guess if you put a gun to my head, I'd say Trump is enough of a liability that Biden, despite all his weaknesses, may very well squeak through. If Biden were 30 years younger, but all of the same problems obtained and the country was in exactly mm -hmm. the same shape, how much better position do you think he'd be in? Well, I'd say better. I couldn't put a percentage point estimate on that, but it would be better. I, mean, well, I ask this because Biden seems to think this is most of it. I've read pieces in the Washington Post for weeks now where he's frustrated because he feels as if this is mostly about his age. I think it's it's understandable he would say that and Democrats would say that. I mean, who wants to to say my candidate will not win because people hate his administration and policies? It's of much course. more comforting in a way to say, well, they just don't like him because of his age. Everything else is great. Yeah. <laughs> you know, our messages are wonderful. Our policies are wonderful. If only Biden were 30 years younger. So I think that's uh, a bit of a dodge. And if you don't approve of how the economy has been running, you don't approve of uh, policies in a lot of these other areas, to some extent, it reinforces a narrative to think this guy is kind of old and doddering. He doesn't know what he's doing. And he's basically manipulated by the people around him who are all crazy and have these terrible policies and I don't like them. So it all fits together into a portrait of a guy who didn't do a good job, may not be capable, probably even less capable of doing a good job in the future. I mean, if you think Biden is a creature of his party and his staff at this point, what is he going to be like between years 82 and 86 of his life when he's in his second term? So I, I think it, 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 it all put together, it's not an attractive package for people. But I I do think, again, that they're kidding themselves if they think a lot of this isn't about people don't like the Biden economy, Bidenomics, a terrible, terrible idea as a messaging yeah, it's he, thing. he promotes Bidenomics. It's bizarre. Right. No, I think they're backing away from that. We'll see how, how fast and how far they do that. But no, I think their plan at this point, Charles, we're going to run an abortion and democracy. That's it. We know Bidenomics is, is not popular. They hope that somehow by it'll be morning in America by mid-2024, but they're not counting on it. They realize that the Bidenomics pitch has fallen flat. The people don't like the term. They don't like the Biden economy. They're much more animated by the fact that prices have, have gone up quite a bit during the Biden administration, particularly with the big spike, and they don't feel they're 
they've done that well under the Biden economy. And you look at the wage and income data, and there's some truth to that. Given factoring in inflation, there's there's not been much progress and some negative progress in some areas, which is different, you know, for whatever reasons from the Trump economy. So they don't have a strong case there. And I think I think they know it. And trying to sell their policies like the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, chips and science infrastructure. Some aspects of these things are, of course, quite popular. People like the idea of investing in infrastructure. They like the idea of being more competitive in, you know, sort of advanced uh, scientific areas like chips. But the whole cluster of things around that are in the IRA that were designed to hasten our transition to a renewables-based economy is neither particularly plausible to people nor particularly popular, even though they, they like wind and solar. Everybody likes wind and solar. I mean, who doesn't like the wind and the sun? But it's that, that when push comes to shove and it comes to energy prices and it comes to the, the nitty-gritty of how you live your life and how much you pay for the energy you do consume and uh, the car, you know, and you're, you're worried they're going to make you get an electric vehicle, none of this stuff is popular. So... There's a lot, a lot of, is, I mean, the policies themselves are very much a mixed bag uh, in terms of how voters look at them. And then when you twin that with the fact that in terms of their day-to-day feeling about the economy, and their, to use a much abused term, their lived experience, it has not been good. So to sell Bidenomics and identify your name with people's general perceptions of the economy, right. which are quite negative, is basically crazy. I can't imagine what these people were thinking. But yeah. they did it. Where do you come down on the election we saw in Virginia on Tuesday? Because on the one hand, the press coverage was quite negative for Republicans. Republicans had attempted to take unified control of the state government. They didn't do it. So I do right. understand why it was seen as a failure. But if you look at the details, it was essentially a coin flip from 2021. That Republicans picked up one state Senate seat. They lost three House seats, the margins were relatively small. They mm-hmm. seemed to win everything up to Biden plus eight. I think that's right. right. That's right. They took all the seats that were below Biden plus nine. Yeah, yeah, in a in a state that has not been hospitable toward Republicans recently. So was it a disaster? Was it a wash? Was it a triumph? How uh, do you see it? Yeah, I, I think of it as a wash. I think it was a status quo election. We just had a good piece in it by this analyst, Michael Baharain, on the Liberal Patriot that runs down a lot of the reasons to think it was a status quo election in general and including uh, the Virginia results. Now, I'm very sympathetic to what you say. I think Youngkin put obviously a lot of effort into trying to you know, sort of flip the legislature entirely in his favor by getting the House and the Senate, but you know, it didn't work. But who's to say, as someone pointed out, I can't remember who, what would have been the effect if he hadn't worked as hard as he did to try to get the legislature he wanted and try to message to some extent against the way Democrats are going to weaponize the abortion issue. So in other words, it's possible that was a countervailing force to what could have been a worse election for the Republicans. But I think the way people preferred to look at it and sum it up is, okay, he tried to get control of the legislature. Democrats talked an enormous amount about abortion. It didn't work. He was defeated. In fact, the Democrats did somewhat better. So that's kind of interesting, right? That you can look at these same results, which I think in a fair perspective, you know, is really a status quo. And you can, you can make a case for either a, the Democrats had a great election and in an odd sort of way, the Republicans may have held the line in, in a quite unfavorable situation. So I certainly don't think you can read much out of that election in terms of 
you know, the general fate of the Republican Democratic parties, and indeed for the potency of the abortion issue in, in a 2024 election context. I think that's, that's definitely reaching for it. Is there any particular politician or writer, or broadcast or public figure who's doing the soul of the Democratic Party as you think it should be done well? Well, in terms of politicians, there are some interesting people out there. I think Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania is interesting. Jared Polis in Colorado. There's some governors that I think get this a little bit better than the National Democratic Party. But they're, yeah, they're somewhat few and far between. For example, if you look at Gretchen Whitmer, who a lot of people like, she's definitely an adept politician, but she's also very cagey about whether, where and how much she deviates from a Democratic Party orthodoxy. So I like some of these other people a little bit better. But look, I think the crop is thin, right? I mean, it's not like the Democrats don't have a lot of politicians who are adept within the context of current Democratic Party politics. But how many politicians do they have are willing to really break a little crockery and move the Democrats in a different direction that would actually get them significantly more working class voters? I think that's that's not clear. I mean, look at who are some, two of the loudest voices in the Democratic Party are today, frequently mentioned as presidential possibilities, J.B. Pritzker and Gavin Newsom. These guys are down the line with current Democratic Party orthodoxy. If they ran in a, <laughs> I mean, we probably see a repeat in 2028 if their candidates uh, of the 2020 primary uh, uh, sort of conflict when everybody's running to the left of everybody else, right? And trying to be the wokest possible on all these different issues. As far as we can figure out, that's probably what they do. But certainly in terms of their current profile, they're not, I don't see how there could be the new face of a different kind of Democrat, of a different kind of Democratic Party that is more connected to working class voters and takes that more seriously and tries to move the party aggressively to the center in a lot of these cultural issues, tries to move it away, move it toward energy abundance rather than, you know, the clean energy transition as fast as possible. You know, that sort of thing. I, I don't see them as mold breakers, but I think some of these other, someone like Josh Shapiro could potentially do it, I suppose. But again, I think that it's, it's difficult given the current climate in the Democratic Party and sort of the median Democratic Party politician which has a, who has a serious profile is more defined by Democratic Party orthodoxy than not. I think that's fair. I must say, I know you're optimistic as a person, but you don't sound like you think this shift in the Democratic Party is coming soon. Well, I mean, partly that's that's affected by by where we are in the cycle, uh, Charles. I mean, we're now a year away from the 2024 election. Nothing will change between now and then, right? True. Then wagons are being circled. If people didn't approve of some of what I and other people say criticizing the Democratic Party a year ago, they really don't approve of it now because they just think we've all got to be on the same page. We must stop Trump and the fascists and so on. However, elections have consequences, elections matter. And, you know, there's a possibility that after 2024, obviously, if Biden loses, that would force some rethinking. But even if he wins just barely, and the Republicans take back the Senate, which seems quite probable at this point, you're looking at a, like, what are they really going to be able to do? Right. And, right. and uh, you know, and, and maybe people will start talking about why, <laughs> why, <laughs> how could we possibly get 60 Senate seats that actually implement the kind of bold, quote unquote, agenda we want when we're not even competitive in so many of these states? Maybe that'll start penetrating. Maybe the results from the 2024 election, if they show this continued erosion of working class support, particularly among non-whites, 
Maybe that's a wake-up call. I mean, at some point, reality will bite. That's my theory. But I'm not holding my breath about how fast this is going to take place. And I certainly see nothing happening until 2025. Once we're there and we're, you know, looking a couple of cycles in the face, 2026 and, of course, 2028, I think, you know, maybe there will be a more robust debate that will break out. But, I'm, and, you know, the same thing's true for the Republicans, I suppose. Right, I was going to say, I hope you're right, because yeah. you say elections have consequences. They don't seem to at the moment on the Republican side. Right, right. Well, parties are, are stubborn. It's not like turning a, you know, a little speedboat. It's like turning a, a, a big ocean cruiser, a battleship. It takes a while. And I think that's the situation both parties are in. Yeah, I mean, that's why I call it a stalemate. That's why I'm doing a big project U of 11 at uh, AEI about the evolution of party coalitions that we call politics without winners, which, again, is about how the parties, party coalitions have evolved over time and how we got to our particular situation today, where both parties have obviously real strengths, but critical weaknesses that put a ceiling on their support, despite the fact that I think both parties, there, there are people in both parties who think they're just one election away from grasping the brass ring, crushing the other side. But I don't, I'm not seeing it in, in, either, in either party at this point, the capability of doing that. So your substack is called the Liberal Patriot. So mm-hmm. I understand why it's liberal. You are a liberal, an old-style liberal. Mm-hmm. Why did you choose Patriot? What does that signify in the current circumstance? Well, I think patriotism is in, is in bad odor in a lot of parts of the Democratic Party, and, and we think that's basically crazy. <laughs> if you want people to identify with a project that your party is pursuing of national uplift and renewal, I mean, it's, it's a patriotic project. It's about we're all in this together. It's about us as America. It's not us as black, us as white. You know, it's the whole, you know, the Obama thing was, was pretty good when he ran it in 2008. There's not a blue American, the red America, black America, white America. This is very important. Patriotism has always been critical to the projects that political parties have wanted to pursue. And when they've typically done big things, successfully built a coalition, implemented policy that did produce big change, there was always a huge patriotic and nationalist element to it. And Democrats are so foolish to disregard that. Uh, that's why we thought Patriot was a good thing to put in our title. We're, we're very different. We're pro-family, pro-worker, pro-America, one of our little saws, and um, that's important. I wrote a three-point plan at one point how the Democrats can uh, beef up their coalition. And the first part was move to the center and cultural issues. We talked about that. The second part is promote an abundance agenda. That's another long discussion, but the basic implication is Democrats are not focused enough on abundance and too focused on the green transition and implementing all the groovy policies and not thinking enough about what people want, really want is a high productivity, high growth, dynamic economy within which they prosper, you know, at a pretty fast rate. And that's hard to do. And there's deregulatory and permitting reform and all kinds of other things that are attached to that, that go beyond simply just spending money and certainly go beyond just a clean energy transition. And then our third point was embrace patriotism and, and liberal nationalism. Because uh, again, we think that's, a, that's always been a key to successful political projects of parties. And the idea that America should be characterized as a white supremacist society stamped from the beginning with the, uh, the, the sin of racism, and that's really what it's about, you know, 1619, not 1776, and that here we are today, we're still a white supremacist society after all these years, and, you know, so many people in this country, they live in the living hell, we call America, this t- dystopian society. 
And of course, that's just wrong on so many different levels and certainly does not give people much to aspire to. Yeah, it's so absurd. Our, yeah, it's absurd. And, and so we're pushing back against that. Then, you know, I think there are some people in the Democratic Party who realize that. But again, I think part of the problem with a lot of these issues about patriotism, about cultural issues, about pushing back on a lot of things that seem extreme in the Democratic Party is that the orthodoxy is so hegemonic and controls the shadow party, controls you know, wide swathes of the media that support the Democratic Party, people are really afraid of saying stuff. They're really afraid of dissenting. They're afraid of what they're going to get on social media. If you're a representative in the House, you're worried about being primaried. People are worried about blowback. They're worried about what the left of the party, the hell they will rain on them if they dare to dissent. So part of what we're about is saying, dare. <laughs> Come on in, the water's fine. You're really much more where actual voters are than a lot of these people are and a lot of their pet priorities. How much of the project that you just described was adopted by Bill Clinton? Well, I think Clinton actually was pretty good about moving to the center in cultural issues. That was obviously part of his shtick. You know, and he did have a universalist message about putting people first and investing in America and all that. I mean, our view is that uh, in terms of the actual performance in office, in terms of policy, it was pretty suspect that some of the trade deals didn't work out so well for most working class people. The deregulation of the financial and telecommunications industry didn't work so well. And it did kind of, in many ways, set the stage for some of the problems with the American economy that obtained in, in the early 2000s, of course, leading up to the Great Recession. So we think he didn't really solve or really even have much of a program for dealing with the problems of working class people and sort of national economic renewal. It was a soft version of what people refer to at loose term neoliberalism. And that was didn't work out so well and certainly didn't get working class voters back securely into the Democratic Party. And that's, I think, what what he was aiming for. He was not quite successful. And Democrats obviously are, are still working on it. I mean, it, it's interesting that even though 1995 to 2000 was a pretty good labor market era for the Democrats, it didn't last long enough and didn't go far enough and it was soon interfered with by other economic events to the point where people did not identify that period of, of uplift, so to speak, with the Democratic Party. So they have a lot of work to do to get convinced working class voters, again, that they are the party that can be trusted to deliver prosperity for ordinary working and middle class people. Um, and, you know, Clinton, at least Clinton realized the problem, right? He understood we have to convince the center of the country, Democrats are all about you and uplifting you, putting people first. And no, we don't have all these crazy cultural positions. We're, we're, we're like normal. So that was all good. I think it was like good idea, bad execution. But I, I do give him credit where credit's due. All right, my final question is one that I, I'm sure you could talk about forever. So uh -huh. forgive me for finishing up with a question this open, but you wrote 21 years ago, The Emerging Democratic Majority. As uh -huh. you say, there is a bowdlerized version of this that I'm sure is thrown at you all the time, almost in the sense of, you promised. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. And, what happened, buddy? Yeah. yeah. And on the right, there's a version of this that holds that you and I can talk about this stuff all day, but that in the long run that borderized version is correct. And all you have to do as a Democrat is sit and wait. The border is open and people come in and then mm -hmm. they have children and we right. have more dark people in America than then the Democrats win. Uh, what truth is there 
to that idea? Do you think long-term demographic trends help the Democratic Party, or do you think that's an open question now? Well, I think that demographic trends all else equal help the Democratic Party, but that phrase all else equal is critical, and that's what people forgot about, right? If you're going to have, for example, more non-white voters over time, and those non-white voters continue to vote by the same margins for the Democratic Party, by definition, that will help the Democratic Party. However, what happens if that's not the case, and your margins among these rising groups are compressed, and then what's the net of that? And I think what we found, much to Democrats' dismay, that among some of these key groups, particularly non-white voters now, we've seen that compression of margins that, in fact, has canceled out and then some, the effect of just the change in the mix or share of voters that are come from the non-white population. So that, I think, is a bit of a wake-up call for them on that and sort of is, is a concrete example of how you can't just assume demographics is destiny. But I think the favorite thing now, Charles, in terms of demographics is destiny among Democrats is it's generational. No, there's no, no force more powerful in demographic change than cohort replacement. You know, you've got younger generations coming into the electorate who lean Democratic and seem to be sticking somewhat to the Democrats as they age. Therefore, as we get more of Gen Z and millennial voters and they age and they have higher turnout and there'll be a generation behind Gen Z uh, and all the people from Gen X and the baby boomers start dying out, obviously the Democrats will be the party of the future. But the same exact thing applies to these cohorts. It is not a given that they will remain with... you know, sort of voting Democratic at the same rate and with the same margins than they did before. And there's already considerable signs of attrition on that score. I mean, if you look at the New York Times survey recently, and it's hardly the only survey that shows it, Democrats' margins among younger voters are quite compressed relative to what they were in 2020. And in the end, while these generations have started out from a baseline that's more pro-Democratic, the idea that they can't shift over time, depending on circumstances, and how they view the two parties is is a bit silly. It's not that easy. If it was that easy, you can. We did math. We, we did simulations where we showed that if <laughs> if the margins among these cohorts, these generations, remain the same, by the time you get to twenty thirty six or twenty forty, the Democrats are getting four hundred electoral votes, right? But here's the problem: that might not happen. And in fact, we already see signs that it's not as reliable as people thought. So I think the lesson of the non-white sort of the Bowdlerized version of the of the of the right of the original democratic majority i think people should just have discarded on the basis of what's happened with the non-white population in particular in the last 10 years but i would strongly caution them on applying the same logic to generations and generational replacement it's not going to be that easy a surprise a shocker you actually have to figure out how to appeal to these voters over time and convince them you are, in fact, the party that's in their best interest, and their loyalty will not be as stable as you want it to be if, in fact, they're not convinced that's the case. Well, that is a perfect place to finish our conversation. So, Rui Teixeira, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. It was fun talk. And that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to you for listening. Thank you to my guest, Rui Teixeira. Thank you to the questionable soul of Luther Abel. And we'll see you next week.